podcast for all things brain, behavioural and organisational sciences. We are delighted that you have joined us. As always, to listen back to past episodes, make sure to check out our website, brainforbusiness.ie, and feel free to drop us a note via the website with any comments, feedback, or even suggestions. While bias and discrimination are far from new phenomena, in recent years, we've all become much more aware of their meaning and impact. From Me Too to Black Lives Matter and a whole range of other movements, there has in many ways been a global questioning of the role that bias, discrimination and the implicit associations that often underpin them can play in human interaction. To dig deep into these questions and find out more, I'm delighted to be joined today by Jordan Axt. Jordan Axt is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology at McGill University in Montreal. His research explores how people form and express intergroup bias in attitudes and behaviour. As part of this, Jordan investigates how such bias is presented both explicitly, when mental processes are more controlled, and implicitly, when mental processes are more automatic and uncontrolled. Professor Axt investigates these questions across many social domains, such as race, politics, religion, age, sexual orientation, and physical attractiveness. Through this work, he seeks to discover how intergroup bias can be best conceptualized, measured, and reduced. Jordan, it is great to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. So let's start, perhaps, at the very beginning. What are implicit associations? Well, implicit associations, in the way that it's talked about in terms of psychology, are often automatic or hard to control consciously associations between a certain group and a certain concept. Now, it's very vague um, because it's supposed to apply to a lot of different phenomena, but we can think about it in terms of you know how quickly people associate members of different racial groups with either positive versus negative, that's one form of an implicit association, more like an implicit attitude, or how members of different racial groups are associated with the concepts of safe versus dangerous. That's more of an implicit association based on stereotypes. So in that sense, it might be that if I feel that someone from a particular racial background is dangerous and I, I should always be careful when I see them walk, walking on the street. Is it that kind of thing you're, you're talking about? Well, implicit associations, I think they, they differ from people's self-reported attitudes or stereotypes, or at least they, they have the potential to. Uh, and the most common ways that people measure implicit associations are through these behavioral tasks where we can infer the strength of an association from how you respond. So the most common one of them is the implicit association test, which is a computer-based test that asks people to work through a, a series of categorization tasks. And they see in our most popular test, uh, black versus white faces, and well as, as well as positive and negative words. And in some of these blocks, there's a certain pairing. Uh, for example, you press the same key if bl a black face or a negative word. So you press you know, E for that and a white face or a positive word, you press I for that. And we see how quickly people move through those blocks and we compare it to the opposite. A white face and a negative word share one key and a black face and a positive word share one key. 
And on average, we find that people are faster when it is white and positive and black and negative compared to the reverse. And we use that to infer the strength of the association that exists in people's mind. Basically meaning that when things are more strongly paired together, it's easy for you to form that association that speeds you up through those blocks. And when they're more distantly associated in your mind, it's harder for you to form that association, and that's what slows you down. Now, oftentimes, these implicit associations can align with what we self-report, but they don't necessarily have to. So in our non-representative sample, but of people who come to our website and complete such a task, about 65% of them say that they have no conscious self-reported preference between black and white people. And we don't have to think that they're lying. That's, that is actually how they feel. But implicitly, our implicit associations might be susceptible to different forms of information. And there we see that really 70% of people have what we, we would consider like a pro-white bias in implicit associations, easier for them to pair white and good and black and bad. And so what's working explicitly and implicitly can, can often differ, differ from each other. You were talking about it there, implicit associations, this is in, in terms of race, but do you also see a similar thing and a similar good-bad association coming through if you were to assess, say, politics or religion or age or sexual orientation or even physical attractiveness, which I know you also study? Uh, yeah, ding, 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 you nailed it. <laughs> so pretty much everything you just... Um, <laughs> Just listed, we find evidence of implicit biases, I'm sorry, uh, biases and implicit associations, to be a bit more precise, uh, based on things like religion and sexual orientation and politics. Now, oftentimes, politics is a good domain, at least in the United States, to show that, you know, often what's going on implicitly and explicitly can, can be aligned. So, you know, explicitly, people report large preferences for their own political group relative to other political groups, and we see much the same thing implicitly. But there are domains like race and, and, and sexual orientation where implicitly how easy it is for you to pair certain groups with positive versus negative stimuli does differ from what people self-report in terms of their actual, in terms of their explicit preferences. Where then does this come from? Is this, uh, to go to, I guess, a, a cliche perspective, is it, is it nature or is it nurture or is it something else altogether that can lead to these implicit associations emerging? Well, I guess I'll, I won't say it's purely nature. I don't think children are born, you know, implicitly favoring their own racial group from age one day. Um, so, but I think nature does give us a system to subtly pick up on various associations that are presented in our environment. And we're very good at like encoding those associations over time. And they leave an imprint on our minds that can often differ from what we self-report. And so I think that there are many inputs to these types of implicit associations. Some of them can even be from our explicit preferences. You know, I like my political group over another one. And so I choose to expose myself to certain news sources or something like that, that subtly or not so subtly privilege my group and uh, are antagonistic towards the other group. So they can come from those more kind of clear, obvious sources, but they can also come from more subtle sources like media exposure, things that we might uh, not necessarily pick up on in the moment in terms of what's being reinforced, what types of associations are being reinforced by the media that we view. And we might not notice them or we might reject them. We say, you know, I don't support media depictions that, that are overrepresented of black people committing crime, for example. 
But just because you want to reject them doesn't mean that they, the, the presence of them being exposed to them over time can still subtly influence the way that your mind operates. So I think that there are, are many sources to them, but uh, you know, things like your environment and things like your media exposure are clear, are clear ones. And given that there are obviously different environments in, well, let's start work on a country level anyway, different environments and different media exposures, and also obviously different religions and different traditions in different countries. D does that mean that the implicit associations that people hold will vary or can vary at least from country to country. So someone in Japan might have quite different implicit associations to someone in Canada or the United States, for example. Uh, yes, exactly. And so I think that we see a lot of cultural variation in terms of which groups are privileged in implicit associations. And they usually tend to be the culturally dominant numerical majority groups uh, that are most prevalent uh, in, in a country are those that are more privileged in people's implicit associations. They receive more positive implicit associations. And so we do seem to have some sort of sensitivity to what groups receive the most cultural or social value, and that does shape our implicit association. So I've actually done one study. This isn't perfect random assignment, but you can compare uh, Jewish people living in the United States and Jewish people living in Israel. And so in one context, they are the numerical minority versus the majority. And there, people's implicit associations about their preferences for Judaism versus Christianity can differ pretty strongly, such that Jews living in the United States, they show more, more shift of implicit positivity towards Christianity because they're living in an environment that privileges Christianity, whereas the same is not true of Jewish people um, living in Israel because they are a numerical majority there. And so you can see how the, the, uh, the implicit associations that we form among one shared identity can be very different depending on the cultural context in which they uh, develop. And I'm guessing that, now this this is a speculation, so please feel free to, to correct me, but even with some of the events going back to 9-11, to, to there may well be differences in how, say, Jewish population in Israel might perceive people of a Muslim religious orientation to people, say, in the United States, that you might find differences based on the levels of exposure and so on. Is that fair? Right. I mean, I think so. Um, I don't know those data specifically, but it's certainly the case that, you know, certain intergroup boundaries are much more salient in some, in some countries than others. And so we see people's implicit associations kind of follow that. Um, so, for example, you know, in this literature, there's a lot of research coming out of Germany, and there one really salient form of discrimination there is um, native-born Germans versus Turkish immigrants. And so there, there's really developed research on people's explicit and implicit attitudes against Turkish people, uh, whereas in, in the U.S. context, uh, that's much less salient, and so we don't have as strong of implicit associations about those groups. And, and I guess that, that would make sense. And uh, I, I think perhaps linking to a, another piece of your research that we've already mentioned, that about physical attractiveness, I, I can only guess, at least from my own travels around the world, that how people associate physical attractiveness and, and different forms of physical attractiveness might also vary between different countries and have, have play out in different ways. Yeah, I, I think that... In that regard, I think that there is some variation uh, in terms of what cultures 
prioritize in terms of physical attractiveness. But I guess I'm more of the school and people and other researchers would disagree with me here is that, you know, there's some small variation, but a larger, a lot of it is similar. You know, if you look at huge movie stars, huge movie stars, you know, the world over are regarded as physically attractive pretty much in every single country that you go to. That's partly what makes them huge movie stars. Uh, and so there might be small things that are privileged in one culture over another, but there actually is a surprising amount of agreement, in my opinion, in terms of what makes people physically attractive. Okay, no, that makes sense. And I guess as well, what what that hints at is that while implicit associations can be perhaps sort of negative in, in orientation, so thinking someone is, is, is bad, there is also that link that you, you hinted at earlier on to, toward privilege, that seeing certain groups as, as better or, or, or privileged. Is that how implicit associations also work? Well, I think that for some people, you know, who really buy into this idea that, you know, certain groups are better than others and they deserve this type of privilege, that for sure feeds into their implicit associations. But I think what's interesting about people's implicit associations is that while many of us live in societies that do have these kind of social hierarchies about which groups get more resources or are, are greater are, are more prioritized, many of us reject that at a conscious level and say, I don't support the fact that these hierarchies exist and I might even devote myself to the work that I can do to dismantle these hierarchies. But what's interesting about implicit associations is they can still embed ourselves in our minds even when we consciously reject these hierarchies. Just the mere experience of living in a culture and the way that it shapes media or politics for terms, in terms of which groups are given a more positive um, portrayal or which groups are given more opportunities, even if we reject that system, it can still feed into the way that our mind forms these associations. And does that then form the basis of, of say, discrimination? You know, so perhaps more more overt um, demonstration of of those biases. Well, that that is the big question, I think, in a lot of the implicit association literature. Um, and I'm glad that you've asked me this. I think that you know, if I had given this this podcast 20 years ago, we probably would have maybe overplayed the result that these types of automatic implicit associations play in large forms of discrimination, which is actually bias based on behavior. So outside of just how well you pair things together, to what extent does that lead into you, you know, being more likely to hire versus fire a black versus white employee? You know, when we talk about discrimination, we're thinking about more substantive behavior there. And there, I think the results is that we know from a correlational level, I think that these types of implicit association measures do predict discriminatory behavior, but we really, and they do so, you know, at not, Consistently, but not all that strongly. So I would say they explain maybe two or three percent of the variance, which, you know, maybe makes you think about milk before you think about like huge scientific discovery when you think about the number two percent. Uh, but, you know, when you look at how this might play out over a huge system or an organization or a culture, you know, shifting things just two percent can actually have some big widespread differences. You know, a previous professor of mine used to always talk about that if you were an ad executive at Coca-Cola and you created an ad that increased market share by 1%, you'd get the biggest raise in the history of that company because this is a huge global brand. And so just a small change across a large variety of things can really have important consequences. And so I think the same is true for these possible relationship between implicit associations and discrimination. So it might, it might not be the biggest effect, but if we think that it's impacting a lot of behaviors, then it could be important. 
Now, having said that, we don't really have a lot of strong evidence to suggest that the best way to reduce someone's discrimination is to change their implicit associations. Um, it could be that we're not using the right methods for changing implicit associations. It could be that they're just super durable and that they're actually hard to change. And so we think that really a shift, I would say, over the last few years in, in my view of social psychology research is, you know, let's focus less on changing people's implicit associations and let's focus more on changing the possibility that these implicit associations are allowed to operate on the behavior in front of us. So you can look about things about increasing feelings of accountability, making people feel more accountable that might make their implicit associations less influential on their behavior and lead to more unbiased and non-discriminatory behavior or feeling or things like blinding resumes or blinding applications. Again, these are interventions that are less concerned about changing someone's individual implicit associations and more about how do we change the context to make sure that any of these implicit associations are not relevant for the behavior at hand. As you were talking there and you're talking about, say, you know, blind CVs, taking off someone's name or any indicators that may perhaps give a sense of gender or nationality, ethnicity, whatever. The example that came to mind was of the Boston Symphony Orchestra and putting up a curtain. So there were, you know, blind, uh, blind auditions. So they, they simply could not see the person who was playing, whether it was male, female, whatever racial group that person might have been from. And so they saw a if the reports are to be believed, quite a, a strong change in the gender mix over over the decades. But isn't there nonetheless a problem that even if someone were to get through that blind audition, once they actually join the organization or that blind CV process, then these implicit associations and, and perhaps aspects of discrimination might once again kick in and 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 hamper their um, progression within the organization. Yeah, that's a great point, actually. Um, so you're right. I think a lot of the blinding research is about that initial entry point. How do we change the representation of people who are admitted into the organization, for example? Uh, but, you know, you, can, you can't ask people to live their entire lives behind a curtain. And so eventually they're going to have this social information, demographic information exposed. And that is going to impact the, the way that they're treated. And so I think I have two kind of responses to this idea. I think that when we talk about changing implicit associations, there's more of a short term and a long term view. In the short term, I'm not that bullish in terms of rapid fire interventions that can rapidly retrain people's implicit associations to, to get rid of them. If we think what goes into these implicit associations are years and years of exposure to certain values or certain messages, and the idea that you can retrain them like in a day or something like that is probably overly mm -hmm. optimistic. And so in the short term, I do think we need to um, refocus our energies in terms of changing organizational practices that, again, limit <clears throat> the chances that these types of uh, biases are going to be at play. So even after someone is led into the orchestra, there are other things that you can do to promote accountability or to make sure that gender-based biases, for example, are going to be less pronounced. So I think a lot of organizations have done like formal mentoring programs where they assign, you know, uh, cross-gender uh, pairings between a mentor and a mentee to kind of cut down on maybe the automatic reliance of gender information when you're evaluating another person. So that's in the short term. I think that that's more effective than, than these maybe trainings just focused on, on altering people's implicit associations. But in the long term, I also do think that there has been progress 
in changing people's implicit associations over time. We know this through the website I'm affiliated with, Project Implicit, which has been collecting people's IAT scores, implicit association test scores for, for nearly 20 years at this point. And in many domains, we have seen shifts over time and in, in reductions in bias based on race or sexual orientation. So people's biases on these implicit association measures do appear to be going down in, in some prominent domains. And I do think that aligns with you know, changes in media and changes in representation that we're seeing in, in terms of the cultural messages that we're putting out there. So in the long term, I do think that we need to try and fight for some of these changes that we think are necessary for halting the formation of these implicit associations. I just think that that's a really long picture view. And so we also have to take more active approaches in the short term that are more um, active and more about you know, changing the context than the person. You, you you touched on it a little bit there when you were um, speaking, uh, this idea of, of, of training. And in recent years, it's, it's been quite popular and quite common for organizations to arrange unconscious bias training for their uh, team members and their staff. But there have also been some questions raised about how effective this really is. Do you have any perspectives on unconscious bias training and does it actually work? Uh, I do. Uh, so we'll have to, you know, get into the nitty gritty of what, what do you mean by does it actually work? You know, I do think that these un these unconscious bias trainings, to use that phrase, you know, they do a nice job of increasing awareness about the issue and increasing motivation to address it. And so there is some value in that. Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of studies looking at, you know, outcomes beyond that. But the few studies that we do have are not that op optimistic about, you know, does it really change behavior? months and years down the road. Uh, it doesn't seem like that's the case. Maybe there are going to be some st better studies run in the years to come that show that, but the current evidence is not that bullish on, on the prospect that just a one or two day training can really alter people's behavior long term. And so when I'm asked to, to give something like these trainings, I'm very clear that what I think this training is, is that, you know, it, it's supposed to ignite interest in this topic and it's supposed, we're supposed to use the increased motivation and awareness that we have to get people in the organization to create these more systemic changes, these more organizational changes that we think long-term are actually going to change behavior. So I do think that they have some, event, uh, some value in increasing motivation to address this problem, but the idea that there can be an end-all be-all and that's all you really need to do is, is not the case. I guess if I put on my slightly cynical hat, which would of course be unlike me, um, I can imagine that some people might do unconscious bias training and come out the other end of it going, okay, so I've just done the course and I've just discovered that I'm maybe racist or sexist. And well, actually that's, 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 yeah, that's, that's not too bad. That's, that's kind of okay. I'm comfortable with that, even though that's obviously not the intention of the, the training, or am I just being a little bit, uh, bit cynical as I suggested? Well, you know, it's, it's possible that some people will have that reaction that hasn't typically been the case. Most people reject this idea that they are, or I want to work against this idea that things like race or sexual orientation are impacting the way that they evaluate others. You know, you can also make the case that when you're working within an organization, for example, these types of implicit biases or automatic associations can really hurt the company's ability to identify talent or retain talent. So in my own research looking at physical attractiveness, for example, we give people you know, hypothetical profiles to evaluate and then we play with whether that profile is associated with someone who's more versus less physically attractive. 
And although people say, like, I wasn't paying attention to physical attractiveness at all, we really get this consistent effect that people go easier on those who are more physically attractive and harder on those who are less physically attractive. And one point I like to make when I talk about this research is that, you know, there's one clear victim here, which is the, the, the applicant. We'd like to think that we live in a world where our looks aren't so important for whether or not we get the job or not. But another victim is the actual organization themselves, which is because, because they're unknowingly relying on information like physical attractiveness, they're less able to clearly evaluate people's actual qualifications, and that leads to, to less efficient hiring. It reminds me of a story someone I know once told me about themselves, where they were they were doing some interviewing in uh, recruitment interviewing in, in Central Europe for, for different roles. And for some of the roles, they had a, an interpreter working with them. And after one interview, apparently the interpreter turned to, to, to my friend and said, why were you soft on that person? Why didn't you give them all the hard questions you were giving everyone else? And when he reflected on it, my friend, this is uh, what he realized was that it was this actual idea of um, interpersonal attractiveness was what had subconsciously impacted the way he approached that particular interview, even though he knew all about the, the theory um, of physical attractiveness and the impact. But he saw it playing out in real time in that context, and it took someone else to, to point it out to him. Nice. One-off replication of a very classic study in social psychology all about this idea of a self-fulfilling prophecy, where again, it was about our expectations of more versus less physically attractive people. And they actually had people just talk on the phone so you couldn't even see them, but they told someone that, you know, they gave them a headshot who is, this is who you will be talking to. And when that person was portrayed as more physically attractive, they found that the people having the conversation in turn asked that person questions that made them align with that made it easier for them to uh, align with our stereotypes about physically attractive people so they asked them questions that made them appear more sociable or more affable so like you know what's the time that you've had fun or what do you like to do on the weekends or something like that those questions came more naturally when we expected someone to be physically attractive which in turn kind of only reinforces the stereotypes that we have about physically attractive people it's mad, really. I, I, I guess as we start to, to pull together the, the different strands of the conversation, I know we've touched upon this, but what would you suggest are some steps that people could take to better manage their own negative, perhaps implicit associations? Are there any things that you would suggest? Well, you know, as I was saying earlier, when we think about these really automatic implicit associations, Sure, maybe there are some things that you could do to change them in the short term, you know, change your computer background or something like that to an admired outgroup member. Uh, and that might have some sort of small effects in the long term. But if people are thinking more practically, I would, I, would I would advocate that they think more critically about the systems that they're using to evaluate others, mostly in a business or organizational context, but also outside of the business world, and to kind of be their, their own devil's advocate in this sense, and to, design, and to design their systems thinking that, you know what, I probably am biased here, so what are the ways that I'm going to um, design my system to make sure that bias is not creeping in, versus what many people might be tempted to think when they feel subjectively, when they feel like they're being objective people just um, from their own self-perceptions, is they're like, well, I don't feel like I'm being biased, so it's probably not an issue. Why don't you retrain that? thinking and to be more of, well, if I were to be biased, what would be the ways that I want to change this evaluation process to make sure that I'm rooting that bias out?
And would that be the same or, or perhaps similar prescription for reducing discrimination or, or is that maybe something else altogether? No, I think that that's, sorry, I guess I was being a little bit confusing there. That is my res, my recommendation for people who are interested in reducing their potential for discrimination. Okay. People's implicit associations, when we measure how quickly they can pair certain groups with certain positive versus negative traits on a computer, it's very interesting for understanding how the mind works and what information we're susceptible to. But I think that these things are very automatic and the results of years of years of exposure. So the idea that you can change them really quickly is probably not worth the effort, <laughs> to be very blunt. But it is worth the effort to think about, you know, in my own behavior, when I really have to evaluate people in important context, what are the ways that I can change the process by which I evaluate others, the mechanisms that I use, the criteria that I rely on, in terms to make that more um, critical of whether bias is creeping in at all. If people wanted to find out more about your research, is there anywhere in particular they can go? Well, you can visit my lab website, miclab.ca. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. Though I try to limit that as much as possible, but you can follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm also affiliated with a nonprofit that looks to study these issues more generally, a group of researchers called Project Implicit that's responsible for administering many of these implicit association tests that people have done. Uh, and you can visit us at implicit.harvard.edu to take some of these tests yourselves and, and learn more about how we think they relate to, to larger issues. Professor Jordan Axt of McGill University in Montreal, many thanks for your time. Thank you very much for having me. <laughs>